Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Maria Fernanda Mora of Fox Sports Mexico to talk about the Mexican Women's League, big game Monday night, and the Mexican men's and women's national teams. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including my news story, Handicapping the U.S. Cities Bidding to Host Games for World Cup 2026. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Maria Fernanda Mora in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's been a, a good weekend, a fun weekend. I've actually been home for three straight weeks, which hasn't happened for a very long time uh, here in New York, and went to see a Broadway show for the first time in two years on Sunday. Nice. Um American Buffalo, um, Sam Rockwell, Lawrence, not Larry, Fishburne uh, were in it. David Mamet play, one of his classics. David Mamet's a total weirdo now, but uh, has done (laughs) the classics. And so um, really enjoyed it. I I miss Broadway. I'm not a huge Broadway guy, but uh, it's a very sort of New York thing that I've missed doing New York type thing. So I may go to Central Park next weekend. So <laughs> and then the, the Empire State Building the week after, and then Times Square the week after. Just remind yourself of why you live in New York. Exactly. Exactly. But um, been a good weekend. Watched some soccer, obviously, as well. There was a lot of soccer. I mean, this is the time of year that there's a ton of soccer going on in Europe. There's a ton of soccer going on in the rest of the world. And there's a lot to talk about, men's and women's. Uh, domestic and international. But let's start with the English Premier League because there's a lot going on as this race continues toward the end, which isn't that far away. Man City and Liverpool both win, not unexpectedly, over the weekend. So City still has a one-point lead in the league. But that Liverpool win came against crosstown rival Everton, which is now officially with Burnley's win in the relegation zone under Frank Lampard. That's wild to say that Everton is in the relegation zone with just a few games left to play. I'm not sure I've ever kind of felt the weight of relegation like I have this season for Everton. Uh, Everton do have kind of a outsized uh, importance in the United States as a result of having had a couple Americans and having uh, some some noted celebrity fans here. And so, you know, Everton are kind of, I've kind of like been in my Premier League life for a decade and I kind of view them as a staple. And then you kind of pair that with the fact that uh, they are building a new stadium. They have spent a ton of money on this squad. One of their owners was a Russian oligarch whose assets have been seized. And so it can get to be dire straits for Everton quickly. And we have seen teams that have tried to spend their way towards going higher up the league. They get relegated and they've spent a long time trying to build their way out of it. So I really feel fear for Everton. I feel like they're going to get relegated. I, I look at their fixture list. I look at their run of form, and I don't see a way out. Burnley have inexplicably found a run of form where they're seven points from nine since sacking Sean Dyche, which everyone said is their death knell. They haven't found a coach, and you know, like they're just fine. They beat Wolves, and I think Leeds will do just about enough, and I think Everton are going down. And 
that would kind of be a death knell for Frank Lampard's career as certainly as a top flight manager, and it would lead to huge consequences. But the Premier League uh, title race is kind of, for me, uh, the, the bigger story here. Liverpool handling an Everton side who I was stunned to read at halftime that the possession figure was 87 to 13. Uh, so Liverpool <laughs> were just trying to go uh, at an Everton team that had everyone behind the ball. I was kind of half expecting Frank Lampard to be wearing a gilet with uh, a not trimmed beard looking haggard and f- pulling a full Jose Mourinho in 2014 because um, that's basically how his team played. But Liverpool get the job done. It took an hour to find the breakthrough, and them and City are are comfortable in, in victory yet again. And I guess the question is, when's the next game that either of these teams have to sweat? Um, because so far, uh, since they played each other and drew in the league, uh, they haven't really had to sweat in the Premier League, at least. Jesse Marsh is going to give Man City problems. You heard it here <laughs> first. Jesse Marsh and Leeds United going to give Man City problems. Uh, and I realize Leeds United is not out of the the danger zone here when it comes to relegation. And they play on Monday uh, against Crystal Palace, rematch of the old New York Red Bulls and New York City FC coaches, uh, which is kind of cool, I think. And even Frank Lampard has an MLS connection, you know? I mean, it's, it's interesting how many MLS connections there are in the Premier League these days. But um, It's interesting, too, when I talk to Liverpool people, how they feel, and it's a very wide-ranging response when you ask them about how they would feel about Everton potentially going down, because this is their Liverpool cross-town rival. Stadiums are awfully close to each other. You can walk between them very easily. And when we had Jamie Carragher on the show a couple of weeks ago, he most definitely did not want Everton to go down. Now, he's also a childhood Everton fan, but still, he's associated with Liverpool. And I was talking last month with Neil Atkinson, my friend from the Anfield Rap, who's absolutely fantastic. And he was gleeful about the possibility <laughs> of Everton going down. <laughs> Like he had mapped out all the scenarios and he was like, I am not going to apologize for anything. I would just be absolutely thrilled (laughs) if Everton goes down uh, (laughs) to the championship. (laughs) So it's it's a pretty wild time. And I will say you're right about the whole U.S. Everton connection. My mom was an Everton fan. She became a soccer fan late in life. She wanted to keep up with what I was doing, and she loved Tim Howard. I've told Tim this. She loved Tim Howard and loved Everton, watched their games every week, and uh, I think my uh, dearly departed mother would be pretty disappointed right now at, uh, at Everton and how this season has gone and everything that's happened at that club. Um, is there... Oh, other stuff to talk about with the Premier League, by the way. Christian Pulisic with a late goal, a late winner for Chelsea, coming on as a sub to beat 10-man West Ham United at Stamford Bridge. And really cool to see Christian Pulisic absolutely hyped, as he should have been, after scoring this goal. And this is a guy who I think has come off the bench now five straight games. So maybe might also earn him some starts too. Yeah, and Thomas Tuchel said after the game that the reason why he hasn't been starting is because 
of the travel and the exhaustion that he's had <laughs> in playing in World Cup qualifying. And he came back and he said he wasn't ready to start. And we should also say that Timo Werner has stepped up in a forward role for them as well. Um, that yeah. is kind of left out. But yeah, he said that, you know, the exhaustion is part of the reason why uh, he's had to kind of regain his form from the bench. I actually thought that, I mean, Pulisic didn't really do a great deal before popping up to score the goal. And that's a really big moment for him because Chelsea are a club with their attackers because so few of them really other than Mason Mount have locked down a place in that team based off of a continuous run of goal scoring form that it's basically whoever is on whoever's in form is who gets picked. I mean, they have so many guys, right? You know, Havertz and Werner and Ziyech and Mason Mount and Lukaku and even, you know, Callum Hudson-Odoi occasionally plays in forward positions and yet Pulisic as well that, you know, with so many players for three positions, it's basically who is ever in form. And so if Pulisic can score a big goal like that, takes all the attention off of Jorginho, who no doubt would have been the story if not uh, for Pulisic scoring late because his jump penalty uh, was met by Lucas Fabianski on the line. He didn't, he didn't respond in kind. And so Chelsea might have lost if not for Pulisic's heroics. But, uh, you know, from his standpoint, it's really about getting into form you know, playing every so often. It doesn't have to be every week uh, from an American point of view. And earning his way into the team by making big attacking contributions. You know who I'm suffering some exhaustion from? Thomas Tuchel. Hmm. I am a little exhausted by Thomas Tuchel this season. Uh, I I think he is holding Pulisic to a slightly different standard here. He's got players, other players that play for national teams in far-flung locations from England and, and I do think it reminds me a little bit, Tuchel's approach toward Christian Pulisic, it's a little bit like the first 10 years I was at Sports Illustrated. I talked about this with other people who are writers who came up through the ranks there. So if you came up, like if you started out at a very low level fact checker position at Sports Illustrated and then you became a full-time writer, some of the editors there would just still act toward you like you were that rookie fact checker, even when you had established yourself as a terrific full-time writer journalist. I think there's a little something there. Christian Pulisic, Thomas Tuchel remembers from coaching him when he was 17 years old and breaking through at Dortmund. And I don't think Thomas Tuchel looks at Christian Pulisic like the player that he is now. I think he still has his view of Christian Pulisic colored by the 17-year-old that he saw just starting out. Am I being unfair? No, I don't think so. I think that's natural uh, in any workplace. I actually remember uh, feeling somewhat similar things when uh, I began my career, right? That I was never going to be the guy. I, I actually would never have gotten a raise in my initial place of employment if I didn't get an offer from somewhere else. I was going to be right. on that same salary. And that is why you see sometimes guys eager to leave the club that they came through at because you're, you are kind of viewed as, as a completely different proposition when you go somewhere else. So I don't think that's a crazy theory. I, I do think, though, that like Tuchel in general... You mentioned how this is kind of like a special thing. I, I don't think you can credit him for how he's handled any of the attacking players other than Mason Mount, who might have been on his way anyway because he has now been trusted by several managers, um, including uh, Frank Lampard and Gareth Southgate. So 
I, I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, a problem specific to Pulisic. You think about, like, the drop-off that Romelu Lukaku has had year over year. That's a scathing indictment of Thomas Tuchel, especially when you consider that it seemed like Tuchel went to the board and was like, get me Lukaku. This might make you look bad because you sold him for cheap and you're bringing him back for three times as much as you paid. Pay the money. Let's get Lukaku in. And it's been a complete disaster. Now, that's not entirely mm. Tuchel's fault, but he has not been able to get the attack going to the degree that it needs to. If you look at right now, the standard in the Premier League is 80 to 85 goals through 33 games between Man City and Liverpool. Chelsea are at 67. And so he has not been able to get enough out of this attacking side. And you can say he's been without Reese James and Ben Chilwell for long stretches and their wingbacks are really important to how they play. However, I, I do think that Thomas Ducal has not done a good enough job with the attack. If we're talking about, though, like jobs that managers have had to do this year... I don't think that there have been too many di- more difficult than what Tuchel has had to deal with, though, with the sanctions to the owner and everything that's going on around the club. I know that you kind of have to accept it when you're taking on the managerial position at Chelsea, but it's like a war affecting your club is not something that you can ever anticipate. And so I would say he's done a reasonably good job. I will actually say very specifically here, and thank you for bringing that up. I think Tuchel in his press conferences has been brilliant in how he has handled questions coming about the Russian owner of the team and the the punishments. And so I, I want to say that, that I think Tuchel's been really smart and I think human in how he has talked about this situation. Uh, I'm a little frustrated with how he's handled Pulisic, but uh, that's a completely separate deal that isn't nearly as big as, as you put it, a war. Um, also in Europe this weekend, Championships, titles are being won now in the big leagues. Bayern Munich wins the Bundesliga for the 10th straight time. No surprise there. Not even close. They beat Dortmund, the second place team, which is a long ways behind Bayern Munich for that title. Also, PSG wins Ligue 1 in France. (laughs) Also not surprising. Um, And really muted celebrations, right, in terms of... Uh, especially the fans for PSG. Yeah, the ultras for Paris Saint-Germain left before the title lift and the title celebration there at PSG. And it does make me wonder if it's like just about the Champions League thing or if it's about whether or not they are questioned how this football club is being ran and who is running it. Uh, Neymar, after the game, uh, you know, I think was talking to ESPN Argentina and was saying that, you know, the the fans can get on with their whistles, but I've got a contract for three more years. Like, I, I think there's some real discord between a supporters group that, I mean, look, frankly, they've had a measure of success that they never had until this ownership group arrive and until these group of stars arrive. But I also think that they might be wondering, is this club ever going to be what it promises to be in its current setup? with the owner that they have in charge, with Leonardo in charge of the sporting operation. I mean, the number of managers that have come through it have looked terrible and then have gone on to other places and done good jobs, to me would suggest that that is an unmanageable club. And I think that will be the case. I think Mauricio Pochettino is going to leave in the summer and go prove somewhere else that he's still a really damn good coach. Uh, even though I feel like every time I looked at PSG, they were one nil down on a Sunday afternoon when that's not who they should be in Ligue 1. I, I, I never trusted them to do well in the Champions League just because I, I don't believe in how that club is built. And so I wonder if those fans are, are protesting that very fact. Um, certainly the Messi thing didn't work. 
Um, I, I think that's fair to say. We'll see what happens now with Mbappe's contract running up. Um, if the amount that it's going to take to keep him is worth it to either them or Real Madrid, because I imagine those are astronomical numbers. And are PSG going to continue to be this incredibly lopsided club with the money they pay their stars versus the money that they pay to the rest of the team? So uh, I, I, do, I do find that fascinating. I also kind of find interesting as it relates to Germany, because you mentioned Bayern winning the title. Is it not interesting to you that like Bayern, that Borussia Dortmund make massive sales every summer? It feels like they're bringing the money in that would allow them to then go on and build a really top team. You think about like last five years: Aubameyang, Dembele, Pulisic, uh, even you know players like uh, Abdou Diallo went for thirty-five million. Uh, Jaden Sancho, Erling Haaland is next. And they've tried to bring in either young players or you know kind of that mid-tier uh, Bundesliga level of talent. And I'm surprised that they're not closer. Like, it, like, can we say that Borussia Dortmund aren't doing enough as a club, even though they produce a top talent to the rest of the Euro- Europe's big clubs every year? Well, this is an entire chapter of my book. My most recent book uh, was a chapter on Michael Zork, the longtime sporting director for Borussia Dortmund. And he talked at length about how, look, we have a 200 million euro annual revenue gap with the very top revenue teams in Europe. And we have to try and make that up by selling players. And yet our fans, and we have the biggest crowds in Europe in our stadium, our fans don't care about our balance sheet. They want to see wins and they want to see trophies. And that makes it very difficult for Borussia Dortmund, I do feel like their balance is a little off. I think they need a few more Marco Royces, and that's easy for me to sit here and say, but you know the type of player that he is, an older player who you don't think is going to go somewhere, but is also still very effective, at least when he's healthy. And he's a, a real reference point for the club. Like if you go and visit Dortmund, Marco Royce's picture is all over town. You know, like people love Marco Royce and there's always going to be, I think, these superstar young players who use Dortmund as a stepping stone and leave after a couple years. That's their business model again. But like they need to have a few people who are going to be sticking around a little bit longer or are brought in and can play a little bit longer if they're going to win championships now they won two bundesligas dortmund under jürgen klopp so it's doable there but jürgen klopp as we now know is a truly special coach and so maybe they need that i don't think marco rosa is that and maybe they need to be thinking a little harder about that or maybe they just got really lucky with klopp but it's a It's frustrating because I like Dortmund. I mean, if I have to say it, like Dortmund is kind of my club in Germany and it's frustrating to watch. And there's also been several U.S. players there over the years from Pulisic to now Gio Reyna. There's something missing there and they're never in the end that close Mm -hmm. in the league, really. And that, I think, has got to be frustrating for Dortmund fans. And the Bundesliga suffers for it because the matchup that they hype every year is Der Klassiker, which was this weekend. And it just kind of feels like Dortmund don't have a chance in that in that game. Like, And even this weekend when, you know, it was 2-1 at one point and maybe they can get back into the game. But, I mean, we all know that that game and that league is a procession for Bayern Munich at this point. And you mentioned that that revenue gap is a huge deal. Um, but... 
I, I, I don't know what the answer is here, but I just feel like Dortmund, there should be more coming from there. You think about, you know, they went out in the Europa League to Rangers. That should not happen. They, right. they have a much better squad, and I know they have a ton of injuries right now, but they should not be going out in the Europa League to Rangers. I think they should be competing in the latter stages of the Champions League, uh, given the talent that they have. So uh, I, I just I, I would I would challenge Dortmund to do more. I just want to see like a more competitive league. It's not a good sign yeah. for your league when Bayern Munich is winning it ten straight years. That's just not good. Mm-hmm. And I know the Bundesliga like the people there. They've been good to work with, setting up interviews and all of that. I think they realize it's a problem too. And, you know, like I, I see also Bayern fans being like, well, the other teams in the Bundesliga just have to get a better mentality. This isn't about mentality, <laughs> you know? I like, and I love it when a German team like Frankfurt goes into Barcelona and eliminates them from Europe, uh, or at least from the Europa League. I thought that was a really cool moment. So, but like, other than that, German teams have been pretty poor in Europe this year, by the way. And that includes Bayern Munich being eliminated by Villarreal in the Champions League quarterfinals. Over 180 minutes. That that was not a fluke win for Villarreal. And then you see Bayern being as good as they were, dominant in the Bundesliga again this weekend. And it just makes you wonder. You know, I still think Bayern's capable of winning the the Champions League. I thought they were this year. But um, I think some things just... I remember in Germany, you know, when was it? Like 2005 to 2010 or 12, you had a bunch of teams that weren't Bayern winning the Bundesliga title. And now that's just not even a possibility. And you know it at the start of the season. Yeah, and it feels like the only solve is to get rid of the 50 plus one rule when the 50 plus one rule is not going away. Like it's too much of an part of it's It's too much of an institution in Germany. And it's like kind of what makes their footballing culture their footballing culture. But Otherwise, making up the financial gap is so huge. And in some ways, it's only then further carried on by Champions League prize money, which is the other way to kind of close that gap. Um, But Bayern are the team that always do the best in the Champions League. So they're only extending that gap out even further. So uh, it's going to take a a German club to get everything right. Coaches, signings, uh, institutional, you know, academy players coming through. Uh, it's kind of got to be a perfect storm, but I just feel like there's a little bit more there from Dortmund. There's a higher ceiling than what we've seen from them these last few seasons. Totally agree with you. Uh, another big story in Europe uh, over the weekend, Women's UEFA Champions League in the semifinal opening legs. Friday, Barcelona, which is just a buzzsaw, sets another global record for a crowd at an official women's game, 91,600, more than that this time, for the 5-1 win over Wolfsburg. And it's so cool to watch. I, 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 I admittedly have spent a fair amount of time with the Barcelona women recently. My story just came out last week on grantwald.com. Check it out. Uh, but they're one of the best stories in sports of any type right now because it's a mix of taking their sport to a level it's never been to before barcelona women has now won 40 games in 40 tries this season i think their goal difference is like 190 something to 14 now um it's crazy and they're changing cultural norms right now in spain and the idea of women playing sports and that women can play professional sports and get sellout crowds 
in a sports cathedral like the Camp Nou, it's just absolutely incredible. The biggest crowds this season of any type at that stadium have been for women's soccer, not for the men's team at Barcelona, which has been very disappointing this year, by the way, losing again at home to Raya Vallecano over the weekend. And I, I, just watching that game on Friday and how Barcelona tore Wolfsburg apart from the start and just the combinations that the Barcelona players play, it, it's, it's so cool. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to, because you're so busy with stuff, to... I, do you have a, an observer's thought there? Yeah, so the the last season that I was covering Chelsea for Chelsea Mic'd Up, which was, I guess, last season, um, I got exposed to that in full when they put on the best display that I've ever seen from a women's club team, and perhaps a women's team of any sort, uh, in the final of that Champions League against Chelsea, when from minute one, Chelsea were under the cosh. Like, they had no roots out of the difficult of, of of the Barcelona press of their playing style and I, I know that you're you're talking about the joy in it and it's unbelievable that they play in front of 90,000 people um but uh let me do the very sports radio thing of asking are they too good Grant Wall are they ruining the sport by being this much better than everybody else I guess we'll find out with if and when they play Leon in the final because Leon have been the other standard bear in women's football for so long um, I kind of would like to see them we didn't see that uh, at least in the final last year um, but I would kind of like to see Barcelona against Leon and if that Leon group of of talent outweighs what appears to be an unbelievable system and I, I would love to kind of uh, and I'll, I'll read your story um, after after we record this podcast but um, the 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 coaching style and how it is that they've gotten a group of women's players to play at such a level above everybody else. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in just what you're saying here. I I think they will face Lyon, but we're not sure of that because mm -hmm. Lyon won three to two at home over PSG in their semifinal opening leg on Sunday. US's Katarina Macario, two of those three goals for Lyon. She's on fire right now. She has scored in eight straight games. Her last eight games, that's been some for the U.S., some for Lyon, but absolutely on fire right now. And she's another person I wrote a big story about on GrantWall.com earlier this year that you should definitely check out. I'm feeling really good about my story choices on the in the women's game. Um, and I think that would be a fantastic final, Barcelona against Lyon, because having visited both those cities and been spent time with both those teams this season, they look at each other as the benchmark. So in Lyon, everyone wanted to talk about getting at Barcelona this season. It looks like they may get an opportunity in the Champions League final. They feel like Barcelona has taken over what Lyon had done. Lyon had won five straight Champions League titles heading into last season when Barcelona won. And then in Barcelona, when I asked them, are you guys the best women's club team ever? Their general response right now, like Caroline Grant Hansen said to me, was... Lyon is the best of all time because Lyon won five straight Champions League titles. You know, we're trying to win our second. And so they look at it as of now in terms of, do you have longevity? Can you do this over multiple seasons? Because that's the standard that Lyon has set. But it's to answer your question, which is very similar to the questions, what about like UConn women's basketball <laughs> over the years? Like, I don't think Barcelona is going to hurt the sport of women's soccer. I think they're doing far more that's positive right now in drawing attention to the sport in Europe 
and, and around the world, but especially in these soccer loving places that haven't always been women soccer loving in big numbers. And now they're becoming that. And, and that's really cool to see. And when you watch these games, when you watch this team play, they play amazing soccer. And that's so much fun to watch. But um, the other thing I would say about this Barcelona women's team is it's not like they've just done this by spending money. There's something very soccer-oriented that's happening on this Barcelona team. This kind of chemistry that they've developed is truly special. And interestingly, we haven't seen that completely with the Spanish women's national team yet. Like the Spanish women's national team is a candidate to win this summer's Euro and a candidate to win the World Cup next year. But they haven't done yet what the Barcelona women have done. And maybe part of that is because the Barcelona women's team is not just Spanish players, right? I mean, a lot of their wingers in particular are from other countries. So Graham Hansen's from Norway, great winger. Um, Lika Martins, Dutch, has been there for a while now. Uh, Oshawala, the sometimes starting center forward, is from Nigeria. But still, a lot of the best Barcelona players, including their entire midfield, are Spanish. And yet, they haven't quite done yet for their national team. So I just find that very interesting. But it's not just that they're buying players. That is not what is happening here. And so that makes me feel good in a way that it's not just opening the pocketbook. Um, but I, I just love everything about them. And, uh, and I love the fact that Katarina Macario is doing her thing, too. Um, because I, I think she is right now the best U.S. women's player, and I think will be now for many, many years. But I don't think the whole of U.S. women's soccer culture even has fully recognized that yet. And I think they hopefully will start doing that soon. Um, one other thing in Spain I want to mention, Copa del Rey final felt bad for Eunice Musa. Skies his penalty over the bar in the shootout of the Copa del Rey final between his Valencia and Real Betis. Betis ends up winning the trophy. And you just kind of, on the one hand, you kind of think that's a good thing for Yunus Musa that he was in a position to even have the opportunity because he's still sort of earning his place at Valencia. And then you just feel bad that it's his penalty that ends up making the difference. Yeah. And, and also kind of the um, gumption to go forth, right? You know, in a, in a cup final shootout, that's no small task. So I agree with you, like credit to him for, for wanting that. But yeah, I mean, that's a moment where, you know, if in seven months time at the World Cup, uh, the U.S. make their way into a knockout stage game. If Musa steps up to the spot, it's the first thing that gets mentioned. So um, that's something that he'll have to kick on from now. His role at Valencia is growing. It is on kind of a more natural growth curve than I think his explosion with the U.S. men's national team has been. So uh, I, I do think he will become a trusted figure there, and we'll see in what position over the course of time. But uh, agreed that it's not great that that's now probably among the word associations you'll have with him and Valencia fans. One other thing I want to talk about is this story that I published on Friday. I made a bunch of calls last week and wrote a story for my site uh, about handicapping the World Cup U.S. cities, you know, bidding to host World Cup games in 2026. And I learned a lot from these conversations. And while it's certainly not set in stone, which are the 10 cities, it's probably going to be 10 in the U.S. that get World Cup games, 
uh, I did publish the ones that I thought based on what I'm hearing, not based on what I think. Um, and it got an amazing response by far the most number of subscriptions, paid subscriptions I've ever had on grantwall.com, which is nice. Um, but also, uh, it's just interesting for me as I go through this process with my own site of finding out what stuff, what types of stories move the needle. What do you want to know about all this? And how much should I actually say on a free podcast when people are paying <laughs> money for the subscription? Uh, tell me if my city is going to... No, I'm kidding. Uh, so I guess like... Uh, without kind of revealing um, who who is doing well, I guess probably the process. I can do that to an extent. Yeah. Okay. So I would just say probably the the, the process, how this is going to happen, and also I would say when this is going to happen, um, because you noted in your story that there has been several delays as a result of COVID, as a result of the current Men's World Cup, the Qatar one being organized, um, and not enough attention kind of being paid to the American one, um, that it's taken probably longer than it should. Um, how many American cities in total, and, uh, and, and how is this working? Yeah, so as of right now, there are 16 cities, 16 cities bidding, and that is down from 17 because just last week, officially... Baltimore and Washington, D.C. joined forces into one bid in which games would take place in Baltimore, but FanFest stuff would be in D.C. Just is, the main reason for this is FedEx Field is a cesspool, literally, in some ways. <laughs> um, and so I think they realized that once FIFA's folks visited and inspected. And so they're down to, down to 16 supposedly 10 cities they say are going to be picked in the u.s to host games so six cities are not going to get it and it becomes a numbers game at that point and there's going to be some u.s cities that would be perfectly all of these cities could host world cup games and do there's, just there's fine 60, there's 60 more that could when you consider the facilities that even small towns have as a result of major college football like you could absolutely play a game in you know in, in Alabama at the home of the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, no problem considering the size of that venue. I mean, like, yes, there's, I mean, we are a country of infrastructure, including our sports stadiums. And so that's going to make it really competitive. And there's going to be some cities that you don't think should get ruled out for, for hosting World Cup games that get ruled out. So just the nature of the situation. And one of the trends that you mentioned from having contacts now with with folks connected to these bids is general fatigue from the bid cities they're tired they're waiting for this decision to get made they've waited too long and they're frustrated with how long all of this has taken and some of it could have been avoided and prevented now obviously COVID happened right people didn't predict that it happened but it was june 2018 when we knew that the US, Canada, and Mexico would be hosting World Cup 26. And so a lot more could have and should have been done between June of 2018 and when the pandemic hits in March of 2020. And a lot of the problem, people are telling me, is that for the first time for World Cup 26, FIFA is taking over the organization. There is no local organizing committee for World Cup 26 because FIFA wants to run it itself. And so will there be a sort of local FIFA subsidiary, as they call it, for the U.S.? Yes. And they already recently announced that former U.S. soccer CEO Dan Flynn 
and Amy Hoffinger are going to be top employees for that group, but it's still going to be run by FIFA. And right now, the people running FIFA are actually thinking more about this year's Men's World Cup in Qatar, devoting more time to that, preparations for that, as well as the Women's World Cup next year in Australia, New Zealand. So right now, the FIFA setup is kind of failing in terms of getting things done. And it's kind of crazy because in the U.S., one thing we are, we do pretty well is logistics. We can organize big events really well, but the local organizing committee just won't exist this time. So I'm very curious to see if U.S. soccer and Dan Flynn and Amy Hoffinger can wrest some more control just because they get things done in a way that FIFA is currently not doing. But long story short... The announcement has now been pushed back until at least mid-June in New York after that round of the FIFA window for the men for the official announcement of which 10 cities in the U.S. are going to get World Cup games. And it may not even happen in June. And so that's tremendously frustrating for these cities and bid committees that have sprung up in each one that have been putting this bid for, all these bids forward. And they're not getting much communication at all from FIFA. They were not happy, by the way, that the recent communication from FIFA was that Vancouver's back in up in Canada to host games after they didn't want it. And so a lot of these other cities are like, we've been working our butts off for years now. And Vancouver, the only news we're hearing is Vancouver's back in after they didn't care for or want to do this before. And they kind of have a, a legitimate gripe, I think, about that. So uh, that's sort of the general mood. And I think a lot of these cities are just like, let's get it over with and let's find out and then we can move forward with our lives. <laughs> but there is a lot of interest out there in the United States, I'm finding, from soccer business people, but also just from fans. I mean, you're down in South Florida and Miami is up for this. And I'm sure you would love to see World Cup games in Miami. Yeah, whenever we talk about the World Cup or soccer in this area, like when, when the World Cup got announced, every single one of my friends was like, oh, so we're definitely having games, right? And so anytime there's an update, and that's why I presume your story did well, it's, well, is my city going to be one of the cities that, that is near it? I remember uh, I was preparing last year for a sporting Kansas City game, and I tuned, on, I, I tuned into the, the local sports radio show um, that's on Sporting Kansas City that's hosted by uh, Nate Bucati and Ali Trost. Yeah. And they spent an entire yeah, episode, they, 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 they spent an entire episode talking about Kansas City's World Cup bid. For 40 full minutes, they were like, you know, they're talking to this person and that person, all because that FIFA was in that week. And it was like a really big deal. And in some ways, like, you know, I, I read in your story that, that Miami's wasn't well received. And I wonder if it's because, like, in Miami, we just assume we're going to get this. So it's like, ah, you know, well, we're Miami. We're getting it. It's like a city like Kansas City put forth a ton of effort and, and really wanted to make a great presentation. So um, I, I'm, I'm really interested now, and I guess ultimately what comes to this. But I think everyone in any city who's near it, you know, the, the fans of Nashville who have done so much to grow the game, they're they're on pins and needles. The people of Orlando who, you know, took a USL team and brought it into MLS and they have a soccer-specific stadium and they have great U.S. men's national team crowds, they're, they certainly have a shout. Uh, so every, every city that's up for it has a shout to be hosting the World Cup. And so I think they're all immensely interested in, you know, what's the outcome for their respective city. You know, the, the comparison I would make 
is Brian Strauss, the terrific writer, our friend at Sports Illustrated, kind of had a, his own little cottage industry going for a few years there, writing about potential MLS expansion cities. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was amazing how every story that he wrote about the latest in potential MLS expansion did tremendous numbers, much better than the numbers for typical MLS stories on Sports Illustrated's website, which have traditionally done next to nothing. Um, But like the expansion stuff people loved. And it's one thing I've learned over the years. I've sort of made fun of the situation at times of like, sometimes when I cover soccer in America, I feel like I'm more of a business writer than a sports writer. But that's the nature of where we are in the growth of the sport. And I'm not complaining because like, I see how much interest there is in all of this stuff. And it is a growing market. I mean, that's not fake what's happening uh, it, for soccer in the United States right now. And I think this World Cup cities and bid story really crystallizes a lot of that interest in it. Uh, a couple of things I would say about um, just, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to give away like, all the stuff that's in my story, like go to grantwall.com and, and subscribe. But um, it is, I, I will say for Miami, they're, I won't go into details of what they said at their presentation, but the, their presentation was not very well received. And I was told that by multiple people. And yet Miami is still very much likely to get World Cup games for the same reason that you were talking about. It's kind of obvious. It's a little crazy when you think about it that the 94 World Cup didn't go to Miami. It went to Orlando. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Orlando is also bidding. What I'm told is that there's likely to be one Florida city and unlikely to be two. And when you look at Orlando's bid, the stadium situation, it, I don't know what it's called now, Camping World Stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not great. It's I mean, not. compared to it's like not, some of not, the, it's not the stadiums, <laughs> you know, we're talking about. And so, you know, I, I put this out on my Twitter, so I have no problem saying this right now. Like, the state, the, the general consensus, and this wasn't final, obviously was that there were basically four bid cities that weren't going to get it. And that was Orlando, Cincinnati, Paul Brown Stadium, not even a, that nice of an NFL stadium, not very new. Um, and then who else? Denver for a combination of altitude and the, the bid committee, I was told, was underwhelming. Um, and then Nashville. Mm. And... What I was told was that Nashville was actually a close to a lock at one point, and then they have started plans now to build a new NFL stadium to replace Nissan Field, or Nissan Stadium, or whatever it's called, and that stadium would hope to be open for the 2026 NFL season, and that has sort of thrown a wrench into things because that freaks people out at FIFA when you're like, oh, we're aiming to have this stadium ready for the 26 NFL season. Well, what if you don't? Yeah. You know, what if there's another pandemic um, between now and then? Hopefully, God, hopefully there won't be. But like, you don't want to cut things that close. And it seems like they've sort of shot themselves in the foot in Nashville. Now, the one thing I was told, one person told me that they thought Nashville might get the draw. Hmm. Which makes sense to me. It's a little similar to Las Vegas getting the draw for the 94 World Cup. 
And, you know, a place that's like, you know, music cities, Nashville, and people go there, a lot of tourists around uh, the vibrant sort of nightlife scene and all of that. And that would be a cool place to go to, I think, for the World Cup draw. And maybe Nashville would be happy with that. I don't know. You get a ton of media people coming in from around the world, focuses on your city. So, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Uh, what, you, you mentioned Vegas. Is, is Vegas in, in, in the running for this? Vegas is not in the running, you know? That's weird, because um, I, I wonder, is that like a situation... I guess, like, SoFi Stadium was built in around the same time, but, like, you'd figure that Vegas with a new stadium would kind of be in the run. That would be like, you know, we're talking about American temple cities outfacing to the rest of the world. I feel like Vegas would be one of them. I still laugh when I think, do you remember uh, right before the U.S. played Canada that FIFA put out this drawing uh, on its website and on its social of U.S. versus Canada? And like their symbol in the artwork for the U.S. was Las Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, that's <laughs> just like—is that what people in Europe think of the United States? I don't know. I feel—I um, like, feel like the top four cities in that are New York, L.A., Las Vegas, and Miami. I—I I could have a very Miami-centric <laughs> view of that, but like, I—I I, I really do think that those are the top four. Like, I like you know, the Formula One race is coming to Miami in two weeks, and I feel like that's a stop on tour that everyone is going like every European fan of Formula One is going to come to Miami that weekend because it's the stop on tour that they most want to come to. It's pretty funny. Um, And yet Vegas is not part of it. But another interesting thing, you mentioned SoFi Stadium and obviously billions and billions of dollars have been spent on SoFi Stadium. I just sounded like Carl Sagan, by the way. Um, (laughs) but, um, But somehow... They built this giant new stadium, mega expensive NFL stadium in the United States in the 21st century, and they didn't make it wide enough for soccer for the World Cup. By the (laughs) way, by the way. What are you thinking? I don't think any of these stadiums are wide enough for soccer. Not a one of them. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Like, go into an NFL stadium, look at how close the seats are to the field, and there's a significant expanse further out wide. Uh, and you see this in any soccer stadium that hosts the NFL or hosts American football. Like the gap between the sideline of the NFL and the width of the field is significant. I'm telling you, the United States has a World Cup problem ahead of the fields being too narrow. I'm not joking. Every soccer game that I've seen in American football stadium, it's not wide enough. And it needs to be solved. I mean, look, the, the Vegas stadium hosted the Gold Cup final and it was too narrow. I don't think it was like FIFA regulate like American American football stadiums are too narrow. And this is what needs to be worked on between now and the start of the World Cup. But Woody, the- like I can remember this. I'm not a huge NFL fan. I'm a I'm a Chiefs fan, but like I remember years ago, new NFL stadiums getting built in the United States and people telling me they we've built it to host a World Cup eventually, so it's going to be wide enough. So somebody was thinking of this. I don't know if that yeah. Seattle is a place that has a, a World Cup width stadium. I'm I know Atlanta, I know Atlanta World. do. I know Atlanta do, although they need to fix uh, between now and the World Cup uh, the vantage point in both corners because uh, in their stadium, you can't see the corner taker on television. They have to take a different camera so we can see the corner taker. I feel like that that might have been an oversight. But I mean, I'm told Jerry World isn't wide enough. So like, like the FIFA people that have visited SoFi, for example, they're all, they've talked at length because they want to have games there because FIFA, all they care about is revenue. And so there's a ton of luxury boxes, they can make a ton of money from SoFi, more than the luxury boxes at the Rose Bowl, by the way. And 
And yet they're already talking in depth about how do we make this field wide enough in this stadium without having to undergo a major, major reconstruction process. And it's just crazy to me that they're even having to have this conversation because like people in the US, we've been talking about getting the World Cup back here for a long time. Yeah, you since know? 2000, so, like, 2008, 2009. And by the way, you, you answered your own question in, in, in kind of presenting the problem, which is that FIFA love all the luxury boxes. Part of those luxury boxes are right on the field. And the closer you get them to the field, the more accessible, the more kind of exclusive that they feel and the more people are willing to pay for them. If you stick someone in a field suite that's 30 yards away from the start of the field because we have to keep it wide enough for soccer, that's not as attractive of a proposition. So it's basically getting rid of those money-making areas in off the side of the field. So I'm, I'm telling you, Grant, this is going to be a problem. I don't like watching soccer and American football stadiums because the fields are not wide enough. Solve this by 2026. Anyone within the sound of my voice, expand your stadium. I love how resolute you are about this, but I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And before we get to our interview, by the way, with, with Maria Fernanda Mora, which I think you should listen to, it's a good one, is... You have now used under the cosh in this podcast, <laughs> as well as gelée again. And I want to have. Can I? Can you set me up with a button I can press where some sort of sound effect yes. will go off, like fancy lad sound yeah. effect, whenever you do this? Because it's like at least one, sometimes multiple times in every podcast episode. Yeah, we used to uh, we used to do this on Levitard show. Uh, we have we have the, the the original fancy lad jingle. Um, which which I can send you. I, I we haven't played it on the show in a while, just because everyone has gotten so used to me doing these things all the time that it's no it's no longer noteworthy. Um, this is just who I am. So yeah, under the cosh. Even even when I said that, I was like, I, you could have said that another way. It's just the the one that came to my head first. Am I correctly using this if I say I am now under the cosh to get on with things and get our interview <laughs> guest on? Get on with it. <laughs> Chris Whittingham, thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Maria Fernanda Mora. Our guest now is a friend of mine in Mexico City, Maria Fernanda Mora. She's a journalist and studio host for Fox Sports Mexico, where she also broadcasts games of the Liga MX Femenil Women's League. She also covers tennis, golf, and Formula One, among other things. Marifer, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Rand. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> I, I realize that this is one of your first, maybe the first interviews you've done in English. So thank you very much. I know you do interviews of other people in English, uh, but I also sometimes do interviews in Spanish and it's not always the easiest thing for me. So thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. I'm kind of nervous, but you can you should show off. You do TV in Spanish. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're great. <laughs> so this interview is coming out on Monday, April 25th, and it's the night of the huge rivalry showdown in Liga MX Femenil between Monterrey, Rayadas, and Tigres in the city of Monterey. These two teams have won six of the eight titles in the history of the league, and they're in first and second place in the league this season as well. What kind of atmosphere are you expecting for this game? It's crazy for me. It should be called El Clásico Nacional, the National Classic, because um, 
Tigres and Rayadas are uh, the most important. They have uh, the biggest fan base, I would say, in Liga Femenil. And it's always, uh, you always see spectacular games. They, like, leave the soul on the field. It's going to be great. I've, I have been in a final twice between them, and the, the atmosphere is great, yes. And they've had a lot of fans come to these games, and I guess, what does that say about the culture of support for women's football in the city of Monterey? For me, it's like a, it's like a response because the organizations, both uh, Rayadas and, and Tigres, have done it perfectly. They have invested in good players. They um, give uh, the players scholarships. They have uh, hired players from uh, other countries. And I mean, people are happy. And then you see uh, teams like Mazatlan or Bravas or Centellas in Aguascalientes. And uh, the maybe the leadership I don't want to say don't care that much, but can't they can do the same effort? I mean, from various reasons, and you see this very big two teams that win everything, and then you have the the teams at the bottom that uh, struggle to 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 win one match throughout the whole season. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is that Rayadas and Tigres have have been at the top of this league. Uh, and then America and Chivas have also done well in the league. And it, it looks like those clubs are, are investing, like you say, in, in the growth of this league. It, it's interesting to me because Liga MX Femenil only started in 2017 when organizers in Mexico decided to stop allocating Mexican national team players to teams in the NWSL here in the United States. And we're now five years into the league. In what ways do you think the Liga MX Femenil is succeeding? I'm just gonna correct you. <laughs> they weren't, I mean, they were forced to create the, the women teams. So mm -hmm. it was like some of them took it as an obligation and they are, some of them have even um, launched um, meetings and discussed disappearing um, their, their female teams. And mm -hmm. some of them took it as, a, as an opportunity to grow its, its fan base, to explode the, the female soccer market. So, that's why you see the difference between something, some uh, teams and the others, you know? For me, mm -hmm. some owners took it seriously and the others are like struggling still with the decision after five years. But um, for me, it's, it's very, oh, how can I say that, inspiring to see now when I go to the stadiums like little girls and boys who asked the players for autograph and tell them, I want to be like you when I grow up. Because when I was a, a, a child, I couldn't even dream with uh, becoming a professional football player. That was not uh, an option. My, 
idols growing up, Jorge Campos, David Beckham, Rafa Marquez, they are all men, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Who are some of the most popular players in the, in the women's league in Mexico for kids? Mm, Norma Palafox, she plays in Pachuca, uh, Charlene Corral, who used to play in Europe and now she's here, she's back. Katy Martinez from America, Sarah Lubert, she, she is like, she only has been playing here for two, two seasons, but she has won over the, I would say not only America's fans, but the, the whole Mexican fan base, because she's a truly lovely player. Uh, Licha Cervantes, Desire Monsiváis, Mm, René Cuellar, maybe I'm missing some, but those are the, the biggest stars right now. And you and I met up uh, in Mexico last month uh, when I was there for the, the Men's World Cup qualifier, and you were telling me how there are several players in the league, women's players, with very interesting personal stories and I was wondering if there were one or two players that have really interesting personal stories that you could share a little bit about those players. Yeah, for example, um, Desire Monsiváis, who is the historic um, goleadora. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, how do you translate goleadora? Goleadora? Uh, is that goal scorer? Top, yeah, the top, top scorer mm -hmm. in history. Okay. She is an architect, she has a master's, and then she also is a coach. Okay. I mean, yeah, and she's over 30, but she is still playing, she's still uh, scoring, and she's amazing, she's awesome. And um, she's la arquitecta del gol, the gold architect because mm -hmm. of her, you know, professional, um, yeah, because of her profession and also the way she plays. Then you also have uh, Lisbeth Angeles in Pachuca, and she used to work for um, La Policia Federal, for the police, for the, yeah. Wow. For the federal um, police, like, and then she used to play for their team, and with the creation of the Liga Femenil, she started playing professionally. But I mean, it was a, <laughs> a big change of careers for her. And you also have two or, or three players who are now studying um, to become doctors, mm -hmm. which is amazing because everybody knows what um, being a doctor implies with schedule and hours and no sleeping and everything. And they are also playing professional football. Um, yeah, they, there are so many interesting stories. For example, uh, Norma Palafox, who right now is in Pachuca, was playing for Chivas. Then she left the team to be part of Exatlon. You know what that is? No, a reality show. Oh, wow. Exatlon. Yeah, it's a reality show, um, like a physical, um, you do physical circuits and, you know, drills and like a boot camp <laughs> style. And then she 
came back to, to play and then she left again to do another season and now she's back. And, and many, many criticize her because they say, how can a professional athlete leave like for a whole season to do a reality show? But they gotta understand that she won't, that's a fact, make that amount of money playing soccer in Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's not um, possible. So if she has the opportunity and she's uh, famous and well-known and everything to to earn some money and secure her future, I mean, why not? For me, in my point of view, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a friend of mine, Heather O'Reilly, who used to play for the U.S. women's team, she retired as a player a few years ago, but she works in television now, just tried out recently for... Um, a reality show, one of those physical challenges show. And, and um, I understand all of that stuff and like why people do it. Um, now, there's another player, and I think this is interesting, an American player named Mia Fischel, who chose to not play in the NWSL and she signed with Tigres. And she's been scoring goals in the league Uh, what do you think of her as a player? She's great. Um, I mean, all the players who play in Tigres are great. Um, <laughs> Tigres has like two uh, starting 11s, really. Like on the bench, you see players who would be um, starting with all the other teams in La Liga Femenil. It's, it's crazy. So for me, it's very interesting that players like uh, Mia or uh, Maria Sanchez back in the day when she, when she was here, are deciding to stay in, in Mexico. That tells you something about the growth of our league. And uh, it was a big discussion when the owners approved that um, not Mexican players could play in La Liga because some said that it was going to impair the growth of the Mexican players, young Mexican players, but for me, Right now, the, the limit is two, two players per team. And if those two players are like, I don't know, Mia or Uchenna Canu or Sara Lubert, they will only help to grow the, the level, the, to increase the competition, the internal competition between the players. For me, it's, it's actually amazing. It's not like in uh, men's league that you buy for one million five South American players who n no one has seen them play and maybe they just, I don't know, occupy some space in your roster. For me, in La Liga Femenil, they are doing it great with, uh, with this mix of Mexican, uh, Mexican-American or Mexican whatever and uh, external players. So th the Mexican women's national team did not qualify for the Women's World Cup in 2019, but obviously they have played in the tournament in the past, and the chances are good that Mexico will qualify for next year's World Cup under coach Monica Vergara. Uh, the qualifying tournament will take place in Monterrey, Mexico, this summer. Yeah. And, and there are 30... It was a, a great choice for the for the yeah yeah Monterrey it it was a great choice yeah for me I think so right because like we've we've talked about the women's football culture being very good in, in Monterrey and and 
you know, there's there's 32 teams in the next Women's World Cup, up from 24 next year. How do you feel about what's happening with the Mexican women's national team these days? First, we got to understand that CONCACAF, um, in contrast to what happens with the men's national team, um, in the women's side, um, it's so, 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 so hard to qualify because the U.S. and Canada are, like, unstoppable. <laughs> so for for the women Mexican national team, it's... It's hard. I mean, they're measuring their themselves to the one of the two of the biggest um, teams in the world. So this time around, I think they will qualify. If you saw the premundial right now mm-hmm. against uh, Puerto Rico, Anguilla, and everything, they won all the matches. The support by the by the fans was amazing. Monica Vergara, for me, is the ideal coach for the team she already was or or won the she was a finalist with the under 17 national team i mean she's a well respected coach and right now with the with the growth of the league we have many stars we have players in the us we have players in europe and i think they are playing great you can see the they're starting to understand each other on the field. And for me, they have to do it this time. I mean, they have all the all the elements to, to qualify. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm going to go to Monterey this summer for the, the big games in that tournament. And uh, uh I assume they're going to be in the new the newer stadium there, which I'm really excited about visiting. It's it's beautiful, um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your career. How did you start broadcasting games for Liga MX Femenil? Well, I was already working at Fox Sports as a reporter, and then the the league was born, and Fox from the start and. Um, has had uh, six teams, so there there was like okay, but he, who is going to to be the boys? Or we have to like the Avengers to create a team of uh, female voices to represent the 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 company in that league. So luckily they chose me. And it was like from one day to the other, like you're going to to analyze women's uh, games. So I was like, okay, because it was a new challenge. I mean, I was excited, but I am also very perfectionist. So I wanted to nail it from the first time around. <laughs> but yeah, I had to prepare to listen to other uh, commentators. But because what one thing is when you just like watch or listen to the matches and you are not really paying attention and the other is when you know you're going to do it like the next day and you have to be like really invested in what they say when they say it okay the the statistics um the your voice you have to moderate your voice i mean it was a a challenge but a beautiful one and for me i think we all have also grown as professionals because we have learned that um, language matters, that we can't 
call the, for example, the players girls, because it was one thing that we did at the beginning, not with a bad in intention, but just because we saw a 14-year-old playing and we used to say, oh, that girl is, is really good. But you have to understand that you wouldn't call uh, a male player like a boy, never. Mm -hmm. So we had to like relearn the way we talked, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it has been like a very interesting process. No, that's actually really fascinating from a, from a language perspective. Um, what are the different things that you do in your job for Fox Sports? Like all the things I do, okay, I, I do the La Liga Femenile. I also host Central Fox, which is our news show. And occasionally I still do some work on the field as a reporter for F1, golf. I love golf. I absolutely adore tennis and also um, um, some soccer. Yeah, still. And in sort of what's what is your story of how you got started in sports media? Oh, it's a very long story, but <laughs> in... <laughs> in like in a quick version when I was 19 I wanted to study architecture abroad but for many reasons I wasn't able to to go so I decided to take a leap year and then I have always loved sports so I started tweeting about mainly soccer and tennis mm -hmm. and I also started a blog that I guess still um, should be out there on the internet. <laughs> and then um, one guy who worked for La Fision, a newspaper here in Mexico, a sports newspaper, um, contacted me and, and asked me if I was looking for a job as a, how do you call it in English? As an intern. No, okay. but I had just um, finished high school. I wasn't even like going to attending university. So I was like, okay, but I didn't tell him the whole story. So I took a test, like a general knowledge, sports knowledge test, I passed it. And then I revealed the truth <laughs> that I'm still like just finishing high school. Like I am figuring out what to do like next year. And he said, okay, if you wanna stay, I, I can, see that you've got skills and everything so you can stay, but let's not tell like the big bosses. So we didn't tell them, but they figured it out when they saw like a 20 year old who had like nothing to do the whole day. They told me like, can you come at 3 p.m.? Yes, at four, at 11 a.m. Yes, I mean, <laughs> they, they never saw me with like books or anything, but I don't know. They liked me also, so I stayed, and then I went uh, on to study communication. And I stayed at Millennium for three years. Then I worked at ESPN as a um, production assistant for almost two years. Mm -hmm. I started doing radio, like, on the side. And then I worked for Radio Formula and then Fox Sports. But I have done, like, um, .com also for the newspaper, 
production assistant, radio, and then hosting. So for me, when someone tells me like, this can be done production wise, I know when they are lying <laughs> to me because <laughs> I know what's doable and what is not. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's really interesting. And I, I know that you're very vocal in your support of women in sports. I follow you on Twitter. Um, even though Mexican sports culture is still often very male-dominated, dominated by men. In what ways have you been vocal on Twitter and other places supporting women's sports over the years? Several interviews. I... I several like um, forums um, mainly in my social media which sometimes leads me to trouble <laughs> we have talked about it and also I have like this this mission like if you have a platform you have to use it for good otherwise I think like you're like letting this big opportunity go so for me When I say, when I see something that I consider it's not fair, like truly believe me, it's like I have to say something. I have to tweet something. Um, for instance, in, in Mexico, there has been many domestic abuse cases in, in sports. And I have always like shared my piece <laughs> and Sometimes that leads to a great amount of backlash and insults and, you know. But for me, it's like I couldn't, like, go on and act as if nothing happened. For me, you know, the, the players are, they shouldn't be. For me, they shouldn't be an example, but they are. Mm -hmm. So if they misbehave we have to call them out. That's part of, of journalism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I have always admired you for, for your willingness to do that. Um, you know, if a student, especially, well, any kind of student, could be uh, a female student, it could be a male student who wants to do what you do in sports media, if they ever ask you for advice, What sort of things would you tell them? The biggest lesson is this is not a sprint race. This is a marathon because I've seen very, very few people that in one or two years go from, you know, starting to a important place. So you have to, you have to be very constant. You have to prepare yourself every day. You have to be willing to, yeah, I don't want to, um, let me <laughs> think about the right word. Soportar, like endure, but I don't want to, yeah, okay, endure some backlash, machismo, mm -hmm. um, people who are older and tend to think that young people, because of their age are underqualified. I don't mm -hmm. know why many think that sometimes age is the the I don't know the the standard to to know if someone is qualified or not. I mean, I've known like very young people who are 
extremely qualified and older people who are not mm -hmm. and you know preparation has nothing to do with it with experience yes but sometimes you have to give someone the opportunity so they acquire that experience and what else you have to prepare yourself you have to if you want to be a soccer reporter you have to then really invest yourself in the in the game watch every match read every news outlet also for me i like to read like in in other languages and um, to get other perspectives also not just read about sports for me a journalist you're a journalist first then a sports journalist so you have to cultivate your your general culture um, and also consume like all media products watch movies uh, series uh, documentaries you know like really cultivate cultivate yourself to to have a better vocabulary and final tip would would be also learn another language it's always a, a good idea yeah i think those are great pieces of advice it's interesting how many story ideas i come up with myself from reading things that aren't sports media so it might be the new yorker yeah. magazine or the new york times or, or something like that and i think that's really important and obviously you speak several languages um and I, i think that comes in handy with the interviews you do the fact that the sports we cover are very international sports um and, and you actually went to a German school, a German international school. Is that right? My German is much better than my English. <laughs> But I can't practice my, my German enough because nobody, I mean, yeah, some, some people, but actually speaks German. And sometimes with, I've done interviews or like little chats with Nico Hulkenberg, Alexander Zverev, and so, but not many um german athletes come to mexico <laughs> we yeah. gotta improve that <laughs> no it, it yeah. makes sense I, i mean i also know how big tennis is for you what's the story of, of your history with the sport of tennis like why are you so into tennis i started playing with when i was 13 14 and i fell in love <laughs> yeah like i could yes i i mean I, when i started playing i didn't watch tennis But to understand what you are doing, you start watching it. And then it was when Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer were like building the biggest rivalry in tennis history. So I stayed for many years, <laughs> 16 now. <laughs> yeah, and it's a fasc fascinating uh, sport because, you know, with uh, individual sports, you see the the athlete like struggle mentally and that reflects in the game and then it's it's i mean the mental aspect of the game is very very interesting no oh, definitely i i find tennis to be fascinating as well um i i realize i haven't asked you any questions about the mexican men's national team how do you feel about the mexican men's national team these days what are your thoughts Um, for me, I don't know. 
Um, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, Mexico's national team, men's <laughs> national team, since uh, the no era penal, you know, the Arjen, Robin, Rafa Marquez thing. Yep. Because I thought that was the game, you know. I thought, and I was at the, at the cinema. Mm -hmm. I went with my mother to watch that game at the, yes, at the movie theater. And I cried when the whole thing happened. I started crying. I went to the hallway and I kept crying until the match ended. And for me, there was, oh, these guys, it's always the same story. It's always they do a man uh, qualifying phase, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but they uh, end up going to the World Cup and then they play like great matches against Argentina or, or um, the Netherlands, but they end up losing them. And for me, it's like, for me, it's like, uh, have you seen the, the dark, the Net Netflix show? I haven't. Okay, there is a, a phrase, it's all happening again, because it's like a time trouble thing. With the Mexican national team, it it's always the same, like four years, and it's the same thing, and the expectations and the fans spend all their money to go to Qatar, and then you see this big failure. But for me right now, I don't like um, the way they're playing with El Tata. I don't know. I If you see pictures of Gerardo Martino when he started and right now, I mean, the the poor man, he looks like, I don't know, 20 years passed by. Um, this issue with El Chicharito that no one wants to talk about it. Like, this is the reason why we're not um, calling him to play with the Mexico's national team. Um, I mean, he's scoring. He should be in the... He should be on the roster, but there is so much gossip about what really happened with Carlos Vela not wanting to play for Mexico's national team. I mean, that's absurd. I don't think... If they don't do something... Um, like in the next few months to fix the whole um, situation inside uh, inside the team and to repair the relationship with the fans, I don't think this will be a good uh, World Cup for, for Mexico. Very interesting. Yeah, we had John Sutcliffe on the podcast not too long ago, and he went into some details on the what happened to create the situation between Chicharito Hernandez and the Mexican Federation. It just sounds uh, very complicated at this point. Um, I'm very curious But to see. Also, Go ahead. There is there are some some versions that the other players don't want him there. Mm -hmm. Don't want him on the on the on the team. You know, players cannot rule or like I don't know yeah rule or or be or um, have the have the coaches hostage you know with yeah. the decisions I mean he is the authority and for me sometimes some players I don't want to generalize but 
are divas. That's the truth. Yeah. And they think they can do whatever they want. Yeah. No, and there's an interesting history there with different players on the Mexican national team like that. Just, I guess, to to ask my last question here, what sort of things do you want to do in your career? What are what are you hoping to achieve? Mm-hmm. I would like to have my own <laughs> interview show. Yep, but not the the but not like in a classic manner. I like um, ve- um, various comedians like I don't know um, Graham Norton. They don't do sports at all, no, but they're great interviews. Graham Norton, John Colbert, um, Jimmy Kimmel, mm-hmm. like something more relaxed where the, the addict can feel at home and like, I don't know, like get loose Yeah. and share some more personal details and, you know, like, yeah sure stories funny stories and and that sort of thing and i would like to attend to a world cup and the champions league mm-hmm. final um i want to go to wimbledon cover one wimbledon it's my ultimate dream and i don't know i used to set five year goals five yeah mm-hmm. like short term or middle term because if you think what I want to be doing in 10, 15 years, for me, it's like too much time. Yeah. So I, I like to, to like visualize things in the, in the near future. Well, I really want to thank you for doing this interview in English. Your English is better than you say it is. And, uh, <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if I can ever return the favor and, and do an interview in Spanish, uh, I, I, I will do that, even though it makes my head hurt sometimes. But Maria Fernanda Mora is a journalist and studio host for Fox Sports Mexico, where she also broadcasts games of the Liga MX Femenil Women's League. She also covers tennis, golf, and Formula One. Mari, for, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, you got to stop being modest because your Spanish is great. That's all I want to say. <laughs> Gracias, amigo. See you soon. <laughs> thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Maria Fernanda Mora, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.